if you ever pull another stunt like that, you are going to be scrubbing bidets in a Bulgarian convent. Oh, Daddy, I'm so afraid. Laura died two days ago. I lost you years ago. Welcome to the Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast from the Idle Thumbs Network. This is Episode 2, Traces to Nowhere. I'm Chris Remo. And I'm Jake Rodkin. Every week on Twin Peaks Rewatch, we discuss one episode of David Lynch and Mark Frost's classic uh, murder mystery serial, Twin Peaks. Um, this is suitable for new watchers to the show or rewatchers. We split out all spoiler talk until the second uh, half of the podcast. Yep. Uh, and this week's episode... Known as Episode 1 or Episode 2, Traces to Nowhere was directed by Dwayne Johnson, and it was written by Mark Frost and David Lynch. Um, we talked a little bit at the end of last week's episode about how it's strange that this episode is the second episode, but if you look at lists of episodes, uh, it's officially referred to as Episode 1. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's because the pilot episode was actually a completely separate production. It was commissioned by a different group. Its ownership was even totally weird for a long time, so there was probably over a decade where if you wanted to watch Twin Peaks, at least in North America, you started with this episode and all that you got of the pilot was a thing saying, previously on Twin Peaks, Laura Palmer is dead and Agent <laughs> Cooper came to town. And, uh, okay. Anyway, right. like the four million... We'll drop you into these two dozen right. on already ongoing plot threads. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I hope you can catch up from that 30 second uh, bad montage of events. But um, if you're watching this on Netflix, it's not even a problem because they just the way Netflix lists episodes the pilot algorithmic. is episode one and this is episode two yeah um but if you're watching on i guess the dvds or the blu-ray discs um this is probably traces to nowhere is probably listed as episode one and that numbering discrepancy is just going to remain for it's the whole gonna hang out at least one. for season one yeah. yeah i yeah but that's okay i remember it being such a big deal when that twin peaks gold uh box set came out because it had the pilot in it for the first time and it was really clean um it's impossible for me to imagine watching this show without the pilot. I know. It's just not, I mean, so much happens. It's, I mean, just thinking about how much we talked about last week and knowing there were still so many other things we didn't even mention that yeah. happened in there. It's impossible I think, for me to imagine. Like, I think part of the reason, I, we only touched on this last week, but part of the reason that this podcast even, but that we pushed ourselves to do it is because David Lynch and Mark Frost announced that in 2016, they're doing a new run of 19 mm -hmm. episodes, which David Lynch is directing all of. Um but I get the feeling that part of the reason that there hasn't been as much Twin Peaks stuff just sort of in the culture as there you'd expect for sort of how it's been sort of this sort of simmering cult thing is because of all the insane rights between the pilot and the main run of the show mm. and the movie. So, like, I think the gold box DVD was the beginning of that, which is... Right, of just consolidating yeah. sort of all that stuff into one place. Yeah, yeah. it's worth noting one Actually, thing. Actually, you know what? Oh, so go ahead. Oh, I was going to just note... The most notable thing of the Gold Box DVD, despite it, it being the first time there was a great transfer of the show on the pilot, is the uh, the quote of authenticity from David Lynch <laughs> on the back of the box, yes. um, which says, all that it says, it quotes, I think this is a great definitive Twin Peaks gold set, dot, 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 David Lynch. <laughs> so um, a ringing endorsement from David Lynch on that on that DVD. Yes. So uh, you want to just maybe go through a few quick, um, important new plot threads that were introduced in episode two? Yeah. I'm going to call it episode two. It's the second one. Let's just yeah. call it what it is. Um, episode one. So we had uh, Bobby and Mike um, 
in prison still uh, talking about owing money to Leo, um, the other half being in Laura's safe deposit box. That's the first time we hear about, about a safe char- deposit box. Yeah. Uh, and this character, Jean Reno. Oh, right. Who they, who they bring up, who, you know, if you have not seen the series before, this will, this is a new, uh, a new name. without a lot of context really given. Um, the show it's, we mentioned this in episode one, but they, this show often will just drop names and allusions to things that you have no way of knowing. Right. It's about wonder, is it flavor or is it actually a character walking around? Who's going to be cast later on? Exactly. Uh, we see Nadine and Norma encounter each other, at least seriously for the first time, um, in this episode as, as, uh, Nadine, um, explains her like crazy silent drape runner. Um, we see Catherine and Ben Horn, their affair for the first time and their plot to um, sabotage the mill as they attempt to sort of consolidate control of this town. Um, we see the log lady in the diner uh, in episode one. She's sort of briefly referred to as, as the log lady. Um, but this is actually her first real appearance um, in the show in dialogue. Um, and finally, the episode ends with uh, the first, like, really important plot-related appearance of Doctor Jacoby. Oh, Doctor Jacoby, because he's got all of Laura's tapes. Yeah, and the uh, and the necklace and the necklace. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's some kind of just broad plot stuff. Um, the sort of big. Oh, I don't. I didn't know if no, we were going to go somewhere else, no, no. but. Um, I don't. Did you talk when you ran through that? Did you list off Leo having the bloody clothes in his truck? No, I didn't. Because it feels like. Um, we didn't talk about this last week, but last week had, um, I think at the crime scene, but it might've been somewhere else. It had one of the police officers or Cooper looking through flesh world magazine. Oh, right. Yes. And there's an ad. Oh, the ad that, that has, I think Renette Pulaski mm-hmm. in it. And inside of that ad, she's standing in front of, or next to, uh, or there's an advertisement for a, a truck or a photo of a truck right. shows up in it yeah, yeah, yeah. and then it crossfades and that's leo's truck right so we had that happen last week and then this week we have leo hiding a bloody shirt mm-hmm. which was like hilariously cut to like in the most leading way possible where they're like maybe that means there's someone else out there <laughs> someone we don't know about and then it just right. cuts to like to leo's truck but yeah it, it feels like i don't know man leo is really the most thoroughly unlikable character on this show am i right about yeah. that yeah no he's it's, it's cartoonish he is to the point where he like turns on, he like deliberately cues up music to abuse Shelley by. Right. It's I also, guess, it's as also a tall order to be the worst man in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Or like the worst male, given that all of the high school teenagers are just aggressive shitheads. Like right. they're just like almost this in the same way as like almost comically shitheads. Yeah. Like, Bobby and Mike are just like unstoppable, oh, yeah. just these shitty, weird greasers. And then um, James is kind of just pathetic, sort of. <laughs> yep. um, which, you know, actually, on that note, um, Laura kind of, you hear that uh, in Laura at the end of the episode when she's talking about, you know, she says James is, is sweet, but he's so dumb. Um, she is correct. I, I should have met you a long time ago, Dr. Jacoby, because I can only take so much of sweet. Um, and then, you know, she says, I'm g- I know I'm going to get lost in the woods again tonight, whatever that means. Um, so yes, the, the men of Twin Peaks for the most part, or the young men anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's been a thing that has just been 
with Leo, they actually go out of their way to like communicate this guy is terrible, but right. with the with the people Laura's age, it's just right. They're just terrible. Yeah, for the duration, like I just can't deal with Bobby. I <laughs> I don't know if I would go so far as to smack his face and smack a cigarette into his mom's dinner, but uh, right. Oh yeah, that is a, that's a great. I love that scene actually with. Uh, with Bobby and his and his parent, what is his what is his father's name? Major Major Garland Briggs. Major Garland Briggs. I don't remember Bobby Briggs's mom's name. I don't either. But um, the thing that's I think so great about that scene is the way Major Briggs has this very measured, very kind of seemingly compassionate, but in a very sterile way, um, address that he's giving to his son, which he punctuates with phrases like. I understand your reluctance to enter into a dialogue with me, your father. Um, you know, it's and he's sort of contextualizing his son's rebellion as an understandable and in some ways honorable act, but that it can be taken too far. Um, and just none of this has any, you know, registers with Bobby at all. Right. And then his father just, just out like, of nowhere just smacks him. Yep. It's an amazing moment because you, you feel... One thing that happens in this show, I think, frequently, especially at you know these episodes where people are coming to terms with with what happened, you get these dinner scenes, these dinner time scenes that are just so tense. All the while this is happening, there's just opera music kind of softly playing in the background, right? And then it ends with Bobby's mother saying, "We're here for you. We're here for you, Bobby." Right. And then it ends right after he's gotten smacked She's in the that face. As she like plucks his cigarette out right. of her mashed potatoes yeah, or whatever. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just the worst. Um, so this episode this is one thing I, I think is kind of fun to talk about. This episode opens with a, with a big long shot of the falls, the waterfall, which is actually Snoqualmie Falls is the real one. I assume it's not called that in the show. Um, I went there um, coincidentally a few months ago um, with my girlfriend who lives near there in Seattle. And it's pretty amazing. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, I would recommend, and you like Twin Peaks, which I assume you do if you're listening to this, um, I would recommend uh, checking out these Twin Peaks exterior shooting locations because they look exactly like the show does. I know that sounds ridiculous, but a lot of, the, you know, Twin Peaks has a very specific color palette and overall um, muted kind of visual style and you could imagine that being achieved through color grading or, or post-processing effects like film or processing kind. or something right. yeah but really it just looks like that um we went up and and took um you know we took photographs of all kind of thing all kinds of things the falls the uh, double r diner which is actually called tweeds cafe but has that big sign that it has right. in they the just show. affixed the double r neon sign on exactly, into it for yeah. the twin peaks right. but shoot. it's got the big t on it that it has and um and my favorite photo is are the ones we my favorite photos are the ones we took of the roadside where in the introductory sequence you see the welcome to twin peaks sign because that just looks exactly like the show it's so weird you would expect that there would be some change over the years but no you know. i mean it looks exactly the same that there's no sign there right but you take you you see that picture and you instantly say oh oh right. it's that twin peaks it's that twin peaks place where the yeah. sign is uh, it's amazing so that was that was really that was really fun and um did you eat some what i imagine is really expensive cherry pie at that diner yeah we went to the diner it's just a diner <laughs> it's like it's you know it's totally unremarkable 
Um, and it's, it's the, it's what you'd expect to pay for diner food in a place like San Francisco or something, except out in the middle of nowhere. And I guess it's just that expensive because. Cause it can be. Cause it can be. Yeah. yeah. When you're in there, it feels like, oh, there's the people here are just kind of regulars who come to this place. We were just there in the middle of the day, you know, so it's just the people who are here just come here because they're just from around here. It doesn't feel like a tourist trap in the way that an actual place right, well, with tons still, of tr- foot traffic This is still is. just actually just a town. Exactly. Where a murder happened in the early 90s. <laughs> yeah, so that was so that was fun. That was a it was a easy day trip from Seattle if you're if you're in that area. Um I guess after that then in the show, that starts with a long shot of the falls and then there's a long shot of Cooper's hotel room as he's dictating to Diane right uh what's going on and my favorite thing about that is it's one big long shot that slowly pans from the door of the room over to Cooper just who is upside, upside down, down. <laughs> yeah. yeah um i just really like that scene and then it ends with him posing a final question to Diane which you know up until now he's talking about as he always does the quality of the accommodations the scent of the douglas fir this and that and then he and then he poses one final question it's that's not as bugging a professional. him what really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys and who pulled the trigger on JFK? What a good, weird character. Yep. Which is then followed up by his first encounter with Audrey Horn, um, who just lays it on real thick. Uh, and that scene in turn ends with her just sort of breathily uh, saying, sometimes I get so flushed. It's interesting. Do your palms ever itch? Scene end. Scene end. Yep. yep. I love it. The way that the way they handle these weird, almost non sequiturs in this show to cap off scenes is great because that's such a television move, right? To have the to have the sort of stinger of a line and then cut the scene. Right but in but this show, in Twin Peaks, it's always like and like just yeah, take a turn like a for somewhere else. Turn, but whatever, yeah. the important part's over. Yeah, so exactly. You know, we're, we're just moving on. Yeah. I mean, I know we're only two in, but this was the first episode that felt to me like the actual beginning of. Agent Cooper and Harry Truman really sort of mm. hang out as a duo. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I guess doesn't, they don't get together in the episode for a, at least a little bit. Uh, I guess they, it's because well, they're doing the interrogation of James. Yeah. And the first time they do, the first, I think the first time they do see each other, um, uh, Cooper comes to the police station and kind of delivers this enormous spiel to Truman about his plan and what's going on. Meanwhile, like Truman is mid bite of a oh, donut. Oh, he's just choking and, on that donut. Right? Yeah. And and by the time and then Cooper leaves and Truman finally because, swallows. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was actually uh my girlfriend Dana pointed it out, but this episode Tr- Truman and Cooper are in almost every scene together from that point on, but Truman oh, just okay. doesn't say a single thing in the episode and then like right towards the end he just says he's beginning to feel like John Watson. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I thought was really good. That is really good. Just yeah. like because in the pilot, you spend like two thirds of that pilot with Truman being the guy who's going to be doing the investigating, and it's not like he's like wounded about it, but it's just mm-hmm. by the end of this episode, that dynamic is entirely established. I feel like I really like how how Truman is played. He's comes off as very gentle in a sort of a sweet way. Um, it's it's nice. I part of me kind of feels like it is just because that's how the actor is i maybe i could right. be wrong about that but it, it in in part it kind of sometimes it sort of feels like an inexpert performance but i really like the quality that it lends to truman's character right 
That's interesting. I had never thought of it as anything other than deliberate, but... It, it may very well be. If so, I think it's really well done. Truman ends up having to do some things later on that, sure. are, that yeah, are yeah, yeah. more assertive than what he does at this point. But. Yeah, totally. Well, I guess what, even when they encounter the log lady, I guess Truman's there, but he's not really saying anything. Right. Yeah, no. Because <laughs> I, I feel like they have a little bit of a back and forth, but then it, the log lady basically just engages, right. my log saw something, and then Cooper is not... He's not been yeah. in Twin Peaks long enough to interface with the log lady. Like yeah, well, he asks her, what did it see? And she says, ask it. And then he just he's kind like, of not happening. <laughs> stares for a bit and she says, I thought so. Right. And I really like Cooper is um, more than, you know, most characters in this show tends to be um, sort of float above the characters in a way. But he's has that sort of weird aloof smile that he kind of puts on as he's. Anders' reveries about coffee or apple pie right. or Douglas furs or whatever. But I like that the log lady just directly chastens him right. uh, in a way that most characters do not. Yeah. There's actually two two flashbacks, arguable flashbacks, with Laura in this episode that I want to talk about. What do you mean arguable? Well, you mean like, as in, are they actually I'll, a flashback or is it just an editorial choice? Or like their content yeah, is that's questionable? The part, that's the part that I want to talk about. Okay. All those, all those things. <laughs> So the first is um, you see a a flashback to James and Laura, of Laura saying, you know, I'm so happy today, James. And he says, why? And she says, because today I really believe that you love me. She's saying the most saccharine stuff in the yeah, entire well, world. Well, and it's del- and it's shot in this like it's got like the Vaseline on the lens like look almost or like yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, it's like aggressively uh, angelic mm-hmm. and um, like. Sarah, my girlfriend, su- suggested that that might be is it like deliberate way that it's that James's Bobby, memory. I'm sorry, J- yeah, that that James is like, like ah, ima- <laughs> right, imagining this thing, but he's so um, kind of unable to talk about this stuff in any real way, right? I, I, like he admits that Laura was on and off cocaine, right? But like, it seems like it was one of those things where she was on it and he. I get the impression that he found out really late and then she maybe stopped for him for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know, like that's totally not in the story, but that's, that's always sort of the, like, that's the thing that he's just like, Oh, come on, come on. You know, like, right. Yeah. Well, and then especially what she says at the end of the episode about it, just him yeah. being so sweet and so dumb. It kind of makes sense. Is that the that, second flashback that you're referring to? No. Okay. Uh, that, no, that's, that's not a flashback at all. That's a literal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. That's playing what, with okay. tape. Yes. That's um, just the tape. But, uh, but, um, it makes sense that someone she would describe that way remembers her in right. just, the, just like, in this sort of gauzy. His, his memories just for some reason have like a little like floral uh, border on them as right. if it's a yearbook ad or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that happens. And then the second one, there's an, I, it's, I don't know what to make of this. There's an intercut that isn't necessarily from anyone's memory that I can tell that is the actual video it's an, it's an excerpt of the video itself mm-hmm. of Laura. You can tell because it has that bad interlacing and kind of, yeah, the, you know, like VHS. Tape. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of her face and then overdubbed on top of that is Laura saying, help me. Right. Not, not synced to her lips, but just just overlaid on top of that. And I don't entirely know what the intent of that is. You know, I don't know what that's supposed yeah, to strange. be. strange. I don't know what that's supposed to be. It doesn't seem to be specifically a memory of any one character. And it's clearly not a memory because it's actual videotape from the fiction of the world. Right. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, it reminds me of the way that they, that the, um, 
that the um, stoplight is where it just like in the we'll first just cut episode, to a stoplight. Where yeah. it just cuts to it and it's there. Where it's just yeah. It, the, okay, so there is another place that Laura Palmer shows up visually in this episode, and it's when Sarah Palmer is talking to Donna. And she embraces her and looks at her and then Laura's face superimposes and then Sarah Palmer has another one of her weird intercut things where it's, it just cuts to a freaky gray haired guy. Right. Behind hiding behind a bedpost. Yeah. And she just loses her mind. Mm -hmm. Um, We forgot to mention actually last week that you, if you're really, if you look really closely, that character who Sarah Palmer sees behind the bed you actually see that character right. in a mirror he's in the mirror behind her in the shot at the end of the pilot when she's when she starts screaming as well exactly yeah. so if you di- if you miss that in the pilot um maybe just watch the last minute or so again of it and look out for this like gray long-haired guy guy <laughs> yeah behind her in the mirror but yeah i Laura showing up as much as she does visually in this episode. I did not remember, like, I don't, I didn't even remember that as a conceit of this show. But it, it's like it's overpowering over in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. That's I've, also driven home by um, the end titles of every episode just being a shot yep, of her it's prom just photo. Her prom photo, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you can never forget what she looks like. Um, and I like this episode is particularly interesting in that way because they they cut to it in so many different ways. Right. They have the shot of the video. They have the weird superimposition on top of Laura's face. Right. They, they have, have the, like James's rose colored <laughs> memories. Yeah. And then Jacoby's, uh, like secret tape interjects at the very end of the episode. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that scene? Cause yeah, that scene is outrageous. That, yeah. that, that ending shots of twin peaks are, are pretty good. Apparently as I, <laughs> I'm now remembering, um, because that scene it's, you know, it's Dr. Jacoby kind of settling back into his, his, you know, therapist sofa thing as he's listening to Laura's tapes. And she's saying this, all that stuff about James. He's sweet, but he's so dumb. I should have met you a long time ago, Dr. Jacoby, because I can only take so much of sweet. I know I'm going to get lost in the woods again tonight. And then he opens up a coconut inside of which is the, is the, the necklace half. He leans back into his chair listening to this as he's crying, surrounded by these like outrageous murals of tropical <laughs> beach landscapes as he's as he's weeping with music blaring right. also. And his crying like sounds like borderline laugh crying. It's yeah, really weird. Right. As and, and then of course on top of all this, he's dressed in his just it's ludicrous just getup. The loudest attire available. Yeah, right. What an amazing scene, because it's obviously tragic and obviously unsettling because there's this entire right. other but it's also just like you're just being visually attacked right. uh, by, yeah. by everything that's happening inside yes. of that scene the loudest yes. man in the loudest room mm-hmm. crying <laughs> while listening to these headphones yeah and holding a gold heart from a coconut yeah it's the whole thing is the whole thing's pretty amazing um which also i guess is the re- like it's it, i thought it was in classic TV show style, the big question at the end of the first episode was whose hand took that necklace? And then the episode just ignores it entirely until right. Jacoby pulls it out. And then it's also the cliffhanger of the second episode. Right. It's like, <laughs> and he has – which is – I mean it's a good way to structure stuff. But it just have like mm-hmm. – everything else is so compelling that you totally forgot. But this thing that you were concerned about last week is still – is still like simmering. It's so still look unres- out. It's sort of unresolved, yeah. right? Because it's, so- you know that he has it, but you don't he has know it, what but, that means. Why? Why yeah. does he have it? How did he? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then, and, and that's preceded by, you know, um, I think, right. Fairly directly precedes that is Cooper asking James who has, 
who has the who necklace has the, the other half the nef- necklace yes yeah. um there's another scene that uh i think you said you forgot but this happens right after um sarah palmer sees laura's face in donna's mm-hmm. face and then sees the kind of weird looking guy behind the bed right after that we cut to just sort of an isolated scene that has no connection to any other scenes in the whole episode to my memory of hawk being in the hospital and then seeing the one-armed man who we saw in the pilot um for like for uh, also in the hospital also also for just like a tiny beat out of the elevator yeah um he walks down um a hall of the hospital and walks into this like blue light bathed room hawk follows oh right yeah it's sorry i did see this i think that i like just my brain didn't register it because i was so shocked by that scene right before it that i like just was like anyway yeah sorry yes no no totally and i i really just like the i just like that whole scene i like that there's no dialogue in it um i like that it's kind of has no context I, i i think it's really interesting that twin peaks is a show that just inserts shots that don't have any direct cause or effect at any right. specific ones moment. like that though that sort of raise questions but are delivered out of context is one of my favorite like cinematic mystery telling techniques like like on idle thumbs our game podcast uh people who listen to that know that we both love tinker taylor soldier spy mm-hmm. especially uh or including the gary oldman movie that came out just a, right. a year or so ago and that movie is such a good example of that from just the mystery construction standpoint of just having a series of three shots, like a scene change that happens, you witness something, and then it just cuts away. And it's not, it doesn't do anything other than sort of make you go, huh. Yeah. And like this scene is, I feel an example of that. It was like, they showed me this thing for some reason. It was visually striking. A mm-hmm. thing was observed. Yep. Anyway next thing no, totally there's yeah. something really nice that it i think is fairly re- to your to, to to your exact point um i think film more frequently f- leans on this than television does i think it's often in the it, given tele- the compressed nature of television and the lack of trust that the audience is actually yes. watching the screen at any given time right. i think you're right about that as well um there's something nice about being able to just give the audience an interestingly composed shot or something that is just really visually arresting, which that scene totally is. You know, yeah, when he walks into that blue light. Yeah, it's just great. It's just a great thing for your eyes to receive. Um, but you also, but there's enough of just the tiny little thread connecting it to this character that you saw in a previous episode, and the ob- you know, just the look on Hawk's face implying this is noteworthy somehow. Yep. You know, I, we don't know how yet, but clearly it is. I also think a reason that that is not a big part of the t- of TV's general vocabulary to do just purely visual moments like that is that if you imagine watching Twin Peaks in the early 90s on your SD television broadcast, I don't think that the, that moment is going to be nearly as striking as it is on the new transfer where it just looks incredibly oh, filmic. On that note, yeah, I like I, just bright huge blue almost monochrome face on another color background on an SD television over over broadcast right. is just going to look potentially like a mess. I'm sure it's still like because it pushes so far compared to what a lot of other mm-hmm. TV does, I'm sure it still can't across as striking. And because it's still striking. suggesting the image 
that you can fill in right but you just know, the details. seeing it now like in the in the restoration you're just like holy crap this oh, just yeah. looks like a moment out of a out of an actual film and not out of a television show mm-hmm, absolutely on that note i this week i went back to watching the blu-ray discs they're so it is such a great transfer they did such a good job it's incredible david lynch was right when he was talking about that on the gold box set dvd so imagine how much more what? right he would be uh, i i would say it's a great gold box set <laughs> this is not a gold box set no it's not the dv the blu-rays is, is a separate set although mm-hmm. i i get the feeling that it might be the same transfer that was done but who knows like it could be yeah yeah that's i, I don't know the, the like the digitization pass i bet i bet i bet it i bet they had to redo a lot of stuff yeah potentially um i don't know if it's worth going in like the other big huge plot advancement in this episode was all the stuff with the mill the mill storyline has a ton of stuff that moves forward. I don't mm-hmm. know how much it's worth getting into that and, until something more comes of it. But I just didn't have a whole lot that I responded to that was worth like really talking yeah, about. It's, other it's than it's really kind of it feels like ground level yeah. building at this point. You know, I mean, we're we all know it's going to go somewhere. Yeah, we're introduced to Catherine and Ben's kind of uh, maneuverings for the first time directly. I right. mean, obviously, you see in the pilot that Catherine is unhappy about. Josie's right. ownership. You, you and feel like at least and, at least Catherine and Josie have, if not ulterior motives, then they have wishes that are in conflict and probably not a hundred percent spoken. Right. And now we're starting to see that some of those mm-hmm. exist. The thing that's one of the things that sets off this episode, uh, or that's it's the thing that going back to Cooper and Truman, the place that they start this episode is going and talking to Pete, which has the unstoppable and quoted to death <laughs> moment of the fish in the percolator. Right. Um, fish in the percolator which uh that's when pete and josie are talking to them and then they get interrupted with the call that shutting the mill down cost thousands of dollars eighty thousand dollars which then is the thing that sort of sets the advancement of the story arc going the thing that i wanted to ask you about in regards to that and i don't think that there's anything to it but what the is the fish in the percolator a thing or is that just a, like a weird, a weirdism to give Pete like a, a reason to do his like, you know, um, because I don't think, I don't think that like, there are a lot of things like that in this show that are secretly turn out to be recurring imagery of some kind or another. Right. right. And that one just, it's always so striking and weird on its own that there's just a fish in a percolator. Yeah. And other than Pete fishing a lot and going out to go fish before he finds Laura, I don't think that there's anything. I don't think it has anything to do with anything, but right. it just is. So, it just like comes out of nowhere. It's just like that's not a thing that actually happens yeah, that, ever. That, how could that possibly ever happen to anyone? Yeah. Right. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I kind of. I've wondered that myself. <laughs> Are we meant to take anything from that other than uh, the, this just, character's outrageous? Right. Oh, the, the other thing, and this was another thing that, uh, that Dana, my girlfriend, pointed out, is the, the only callback to it, which, again, could just be played for laughs, is uh, when Cooper and Truman are at the Double R Diner. He says he can't get the taste of that fish coffee out of his mouth. And right. that then makes you like, is there any – does this actually have any <laughs> secondary meaning? Like, is that about – like? I don't think it's about anything, but it, like you can <laughs> yeah. draw that out really far if you desire for that to somehow become right. a reference that ties into other stuff. Yeah. But I don't think that it is. Yeah, I, I think it's just a fish in a percolator. It might be. I mean, I wonder if it's just kind of a silly thing that's meant to break up the 
just endless scenes of people drinking coffee and Cooper talking about coffee. I mean, is it just right? Is like it, he's always asking for coffee. He's always just talking like about how it's the best coffee because there's, there's yeah. He's getting the fish coffee out of his like, mouth. Do we need him to have a cup of bad coffee to sort of <laughs> right. justify the infinite a, times he talks the about the best coffee? cup of okay. coffee he's it's, had in his it's life? It's one that was brewed through a dead fish. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know. Um, that was my sidetrack about that. That's fine. Um, the only other thing I wanted to bring up because I think it's a thing that showed. It's a kind of thing this show does often when um, when Audrey is kind of dancing alone in the uh, Great Northern, I guess, and her father comes in. He switches off the turntable that she's playing, which stops the soundtrack of the show. Right. Like, are we meant to think that, that the music she is listening to is also is just identical to the original soundtrack that angelo badalamenti composed for the show i imagine so because sometimes she also i was that in the pilot or not there's a she also puts it on on the jukebox in an episode of the show as well so i think that that song is just all the rage in twin peaks <laughs> like so i think weird. just like snappy it doesn't sound like anything like snappy fake detective jazz is well, that's, like I, yeah it's I the that's, soundtrack to sam and max hit the road right yeah i think it is i think that one is slightly different than the one she's playing oh, okay in the great northern which just sort of suggests a weird overlap between the diegetic and non-diegetic music of this world. Because also in the in the pilot, right, you see the – as I recall, it's the first time you see the lounge singer yeah, yes. singing in the um, yeah. roadhouse. In the roadhouse. And it is so clearly not a live performance. Like it is so extremely not a live performance. You know, right. she has these heavy reverb effects applied to her voice and it just – there's no possible way the thing huh. you're hearing is meant yeah. to think, sound like someone I think the music sounds live. like the way it's, it feels like either to you as the viewer or to these characters, but even though it's potentially being emitted by a thing in the world. Like, right. I feel like – I think the music being non-diegetic and her being entire – is like just she's entirely lost in it. So her dad snapping it off is just like yeah. you're you're taken out of your brain 100%, right? I mean, Right, sure. Or do you mean like – is it actually ambiguous to you whether or not that's just – yeah, whether I mean, in reality, is, in quotes, there was actually a, a different piece of music that she yeah, was listening to. Yeah, that is to. ambiguous to me because honestly, the music in this, the the soundtrack to the show is so weird and artificial. You know what I mean? It just doesn't sound yeah. like anything that exists as music that anyone listens to in the world right, outside it, of being the soundtrack to Twin Peaks. It Yeah, it sounds like the sort of thing that's in maybe a detective cartoon, but more realistically, an elevator. Right. Yeah. Like – all of the jazz stuff just sounds like what you'd hear like in an elevator in a Macy's in 1955 at most, <laughs> at most realistic. Right. Do you want to talk about music at all? Cause some people noted that we didn't at all last week. We can. Yeah. I mean, the, do you, do you want to just say that this is now our segue into the listening into, into reader mail or what do you? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's fine. We can go right into reader mail right now. Um, let's do that. Um, so actually, I don't I don't have a reader mail queued up about music, but there there were just a few people okay. who wrote in saying they noted the lack of discussion about Angela Battlemente's score. What do we think about that? What do you think about it, Jake? The score to Twin Peaks is a thing that I've never actually really questioned as being part of Twin Peaks, just because it it the aesthetic of Twin Peaks becomes way more specific to me because that music is in there. Like it, mm -hmm. it's true. Twin Peaks looks Twin Peaks has a very specific look in the way that it's shot, but when it's paired with that music, it at this point is just so ingrained and inseparable that I don't really question it, but I know mm -hmm. 
like, and like, it's never bothered me. Oh man, this, the show still has not really gotten into the feeling. It hasn't, I guess this is a spoiler. It's not at all a spoiler. Twin Peaks is very aware of the fact that it is a soap opera mm-hmm. and the show takes a lot of cues from daytime soaps. Mm-hmm. And the music to Twin Peaks has always felt to me like it's scored the way a daytime soap opera is scored almost 100% where it's like they paid a composer once five years ago to write seven cues that cover approximate emotional feelings and then they just <laughs> slather the show with them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in that way, it's not ever really bothered me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you don't like it because you find it so incongruous or something. So I'm of, I'm of mixed mind about it. I There are parts of this soundtrack that I, I will admit I just don't like. I don't really like the kind of faux jazzy finger snappy stuff i don't really like that because it just sounds totally unauthentic to me but one of the things i do like about and i and and the other thing that is hard for me to take is what you describe how you feel like you're hearing the same half dozen cues just repeated all the time i it's just hard for me to not constantly like reanalyze that music every time i hear it there are a couple tracks um, and I think one of them is Laura Palmer's theme that's, mm-hmm. that just always takes a turn for like the minor and the negative at the exact right. same point in the right. song. Right. And I love actually like I play the game with myself of trying to figure out. What does it gonna out, mean right when right. it happens? When, yeah. I feel it is obviously always hand placed. But when it you know, goes da 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 blah, right. blah. <laughs> like that always happens. At, you, you always you can hear it coming. Yeah. And I, I mean, that happens in this episode w- with the idealized memory of Laura. Right. Yeah. But there's a certain power to being able to know that that turn is happening. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's on purpose or not, but you just, you know, whenever that music is playing, that a scene is going to take a turn for the goddamn weird. Right. If only because <laughs> they really like the fact that there's a, dis- the, a literally the, a discordant thing playing yeah. on top uh-huh. of the same shot. Right. Like, and that, that that is something that so... You know, my, my, my sort of gripes about the music aside, um, I do really like how willing this show is to just juxtapose music against visuals that seem totally incongruous. Um, there are times where something really tragic is happening, but the music will be very uplifting or kind of maybe not exactly the reverse of that, but something like the reverse of that. Um, and I find that really interesting. And also yeah, it just, it, the yeah. unsettling feel of a lot of this stuff yeah. is, is really aided by yeah. their just willingness to put yeah. music underneath things. There's, there's also something that is really, uh, as you say, very soap opera, like about the music to the show. It, does, it is, it's very artificial in that it doesn't really sound like it comes from a kind of serious tradition. You know, it's not like the music in this show almost kind of sounds like it comes from its own world of how music is uh and it 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 definitely allows the whole thing to exist even more strongly in its own little bubble universe right maybe with like the next release after the blu-rays they can just use the soundtrack like the background uh music to like law and order svu or criminal minds or something (laughs) like that and just you know that would actually be a good that would be a good thing for someone to do a YouTube video of, right? You know, people to, to often score, take So like TV right when sh- the commercial break happens, you hear the music goes, bah, bah, da, 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 and then right. it cuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Oh, just to, to rescore Twin Peaks with just music from, yeah, Law & Order or some, just whatever yeah. 
you know, procedural show. Any of them. Any any of them. The really. score to Castle will back Twin right. Peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we got a lot of emails, quite a lot of emails from Norwegian people about the Norwegians <laughs> are leaving scene. Well, not actually not that scene specifically, but the um, the, the translator sort of Ghostwood Estate sale translator scene. Yeah, um, it is correct. Norwegian. Apologies to all for comparing it to uh, Salacious Crumb. Uh, or no, no, from to the the guy with the big old weird neck thing in Jabba right, the Hutt's Palace. Right, right, right. Sorry, um, Norway. But so I'm saying you are that guy. The um, the uh, it we got a fairly universal response from Norwegians about this, uh, which is that it is correct Norwegian. It is all intelligible, but. It is accented. Actually, Miles Barlow, he's one of the people who wrote and does not actually speak Norwegian. We got a lot of email from people who are Norwegian, but I'm reading Miles Barlow's email because he has specific information about the shooting of this scene. He says, hey, Twin Peaks Rewatch, I can't fully answer your question because I don't speak Norwegian, but I can provide a little bit more information about the Norwegian characters in the plot. The translator for the group, Arne Stenseth, is an American actor who was born in Norwegian parents. In fact, all of the actors in that scene are Americans of Norwegian descent. Stenseth learned Norwegian through both exposure to his parents and by living in Norway for a year during high school. Although I can't confirm, I'd suggest that he's probably speaking the Nynorsk, the Nynorsk dialect rather than the more regional Bokmal dialect that is speaking in rural areas, particularly in the north. I'm sure I pronounced those wrong. I apologize. The script does not specify any dialogue for Stenseth, merely mentioning that Ben Horn's dialogue would be translated. Nor has Stenseth ever indicated in interviews that he received specific directions from Lynch about how to handle the translation. As such, he likely did simply translate the message of Horn's speech rather than the full dialogue to prevent speaking over him for extended periods during the short scene. Sorry that I can't give any more information, but I hope that helps. Keep up the stellar podcast, Miles. And David Lynch probably just really liked how that sounded and did right. not give that guy any additional direction. Yeah, that's my end. suspicion, yes. Um, and that, that really tracks to both how that scene appears because he reads – because there are many cases where Horn will say clearly a lot more than what the translator is saying. But that also is often what just what, just what happens in live translation. Right. Where you can't They'll just give you a distillation to it, try to get it in, in time. Exactly. But that also tracks to all the stories that we keep hearing about how the Twin Peaks pilot was put together, which is – it seems very often like something happens, David Lynch likes it, right. and it stays in. Right. Because we, we talked about the thing where the guy says Jim or whatever. The coroner says his name. Right. But then also um, apparently the guy in the mirror – In episode one. At the end in, of in, the, the, the pilot. pilot. When, when Sarah Palmer starts screaming – was just in like a mirror. visual error that appeared in the shot. And David Lynch was just like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's going in for sure. Well, let's talk about this more in the spoiler section okay. because there's other things to say about that. Um, yeah. So we got, we got a lot of emails about Norwegians. Um, <laughs> they're, they're really good. I wish I could read them all because they're, they're, they're really good emails. Um, but it's, it's a lot for that one thing. Uh, John Davies writes, uh, Hey guys, enjoying the podcast a lot so far. Looking forward to revisiting the series. One thing about what Chris said in the pilot episode, maybe minor, but it's important to me in regard to reading of Lynch's work as a whole. He says that Twin Peaks, or at least the pilot, is a bit unique in Lynch's over and that it switches in contrast between morbid and serious and more absurdist, lighter humor, on, lighter humor on a dime. I would argue that this sort of tonal switcheroo is not unique to Twin Peaks, but is actually one of the defining elements of Lynch's filmmaking personality, and even one of my favorite components of his films. Some other examples just off the top of my head. Lynch's off-screen vocal cameo as a production assistant conversing with Jeremy Irons in Inland Empire. 
the whole sequence with Mark Pellegrino's hitman character in Mulholland Drive, and hell, probably every scene at Wild at Heart, just to name a few. The only Lynch work that seems to be mostly absent of this kind of comedic mindset is Firewalk with Me, the Twin Peaks movie. Though that film predominantly deals with a subject matter so dark and frightening that it would be almost demeaning to infuse the film with too much humor. These moments are so strong and comically unique that I've always wanted to see Lynch do his version of a straight-up comedy, which reminds me I should probably get around to watching the lost Lynch and Frost sitcom On the Air, which was posted on YouTube not too long ago. Perhaps a bonus episode dedicated to that series somewhere down the line? John. For sure, because I did not know that that was a thing. I know. That, that um, I was talking to my friend Jared about that because he listened to the podcast, and he pointed out that uh, Blue Velvet by David Lynch is entirely that dichotomy. Like, do you remember? Have you seen Blue Velvet? I have. I've seen it. You know, several like times, the yeah. beginning of Including that movie when years. the guy is uh, like dies by way of the garden hose. The way that movie opens is just such a striking example outside of Twin Peaks of mm-hmm. of that, where there's a guy I believe just dying and being strangled to death, but at the same time, it's just the weirdest and most darkly hilarious thing like one of the one of the most darkly hilarious things i've ever seen in a movie (laughs) david lynch is one of those directors whose movies i think of kind of as almost color palettes or kind of just little clumps of visual language Mm -hmm. you know you think of like mulholland drive and everything is kind of these deep deep rich colors you think of inland empire and everything's kind of grainy and, and muted and weird you think of blue velvet and you've got these like bright you know, obviously blues and, and reds and things like that. And but almost like weird, like sickly versions of super saturated colors. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And you, you know, they look like they're like from an old, like super technicolor Hollywood melodrama or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Right, starting from like that rose yeah. production logo at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I think of Twin Peaks and I think of like, I mean, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but like when I think of Twin Peaks, I think of like a television show. Right. Cause it does, it does have that just, yeah, it's TV, a TV show, show, soap opera kind of just look to it. Um, and so I think that maybe... It is seeing all of the stuff that you can see in a lot of Lynch's movies through a very different lens because it's operating using the language of TV instead right. of film so often. And also because it's so much longer than any movie is because it's a serialized television show. Right. I think that allows me to split the different parts of it out in a more atomized way than I would in a movie where I see the whole thing as like this one, yep. just two hour piece. You know, yep. so that that was probably just me um, mischaracterizing um, Twin Peaks and 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 Lynch's other work because of the way that it sits in my memory. Just basically everything you say is a gross mischaracterization. True. I mean, that's accurate. Yeah, you're not wrong. This uh, this is kind of a funny note. Greg Bornstein writes. Uh, As a longtime Idle Thumbs listener and lifelong Twin Peaks Twin Peaks fan, I'm so excited about this podcast. Uh, for the first episode, I've got answers to two of your questions and one neat piece of trivia. Um, I think both of my answers are spoilerish, and the trivia is definitely not. So I'm going to hold on to the spoiler bits until we get to our spoiler section. But for now, um, I'm going to read this this silly bit of trivia. The West Side Story connection. One of my favorite totally random pieces of Twin Peaks trivia is its weird connection to the West Side Story movie. Russ Tamblin, who plays Dr. Jacoby, was Riff in the West Side Story movie, and Richard Beimer, who plays Horn, was Tony. I think it's the only other thing they've ever appeared in together. Weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Facts. I don't know if you have any emails on this, but I, on in forum discussions, I saw a lot of people took issue with your analogy last week about uh, youth and modernity oh, versus totally. uh-huh. old, it was just older yes, people and what Cooper's definitely. role in is that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say anything last week because I was kind of just, being like yeah okay cool but like i don't know if i agree with that oh, either. that's fine i don't a, want you to agree with me i want you to i 
Tell me how wrong I am. I don't. Th- I wouldn't say the. I mean, I. I don't think that it's an invalid read, but it, the way that all the adults respond to all of the stuff happening in the show feels to me more like they're witnessing a tragedy unfold. It's more like they had hoped perhaps that they had done something by just living their lives and becoming the adults that they are, that this would not befall that the same thing. Like, but they like, I feel like they as characters have maybe not gone through the same literal things that these teenagers have, but the way that they respond so knowingly to all the things that happen imply to me that Mm. they have gone through something very similar and it's more, they're just watching their potential hope that the world would get better fall apart and it's not just falling apart, but it's potentially falling apart exponentially worse. Right. Like, I think that it's more the feeling that I get is we feel like like there's a hope that they could have stemmed the tide of this, but it's inevitable. And also probably what you're saying is true that the world is also collapsing in on itself. But like, I, I don't think I don't think any of the adults are or the, the adult population of Twin Peaks on average is not uh surprised by what's happening other than maybe in the specifics of it being Laura Palmer, as much as they are just crestfallen sure. that I, it's what I has think happened. That's to- I think that's totally valid. Um, I don't know what that means in regards to who Cooper is, but, uh, right. Well, we, that's hard to talk about right now because there's, yeah. I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. Man, that actually, I think there's later. a lot more starting next week that we can yeah. talk about in regards to yeah, that stuff. I, I think so too. Um, if I were to, never mind. Um, there's just a lot. This 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 whole topic just I think comes up a lot more over the course of the series. Yep. So this will be something we end up talking about a lot. I think as far as what Twin Peaks means and, mm-hmm. and, and what it's about. Um, on that, do you want to move into the spoiler section? Yeah, I do want to say that I'm excited as all hell for next week's episode because episode three of the show is very likely my favorite episode of the entire run of Twin Peaks. Oh wow! Okay, it's way up on the list at least. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, here's a here's a final quick email before we head into the spoiler section. Warning you, if you are someone who's never seen Twin Peaks before. Sam Anderson. Hi, Chris and Jake. I owe Jake an apology. I thought I had watched all of Twin Peaks, so I listened to the spoiler section on last week's episode. I had not watched all of Twin Peaks. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jake. Your concern last week for people listening to the spoiler part was totally justified, but it's my own fault for listening. Um, anyway, he had, he had watched more than this, but not the whole series. Oh, um, no. And then he then spent the entire weekend just burning through the entire Just because it's like, it's in my brain now. I gotta go. Yeah. Anyway, loving the show. Thanks for getting me returned to Twin Peaks. Best wishes, Sam. So keep that warning in mind, listeners. Um, So for those of you who are going to be tuning out, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Um, You can write us at TwinPeaks at IdleThumbs.net. You can find us on Twitter at Peaks Rewatch. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch. And you can find our show's website at TwinPeaksRewatch.com. Yes. Um, if you are enjoying the show and you're using it as an excuse to get your friends into Twin Peaks, which you totally should, please tell them about it. Um, also, it would do us a favor if you would review us on iTunes. It actually helps quite a lot. Yes. Thanks so much. And on that note, we will transition into the spoiler section of this week's episode. Now with musical interlude. <laughs> All right, so let's um, go back to that email that I that I mentioned earlier that included that little tiny bit of of um, West Side Story trivia. The more substantial part of that email is two um, spoiler filled responses to things we talked about last week. Um, this is Greg Bornstein again. 
Um, he With said, spoiler stuff. We're in the spoiler yeah, part this now. Yeah, spoilers in case you didn't heed our earlier warning. Um, so he says, in the first podcast, you guys wondered about how much of the plot um, David Lynch and Mark Frost had in mind from the beginning. From having watched a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, footage and interviews over the years, my sense is that they knew Leland Palmer was the killer, but they planned to have that question fade into the background instead of getting revealed so quickly. They got pressured into revealing the killer by the network who didn't want to disappoint the audience of what was actually quite a hit show. Um, Jake, you're about to interrupt here. So that, well, I don't know if he's going to talk about this, but I was, um, I was talking to my friend, uh, David, who has been recently rewatching Twin Peaks and he pointed out, and this is a big fat jump into the future, but he, he was surprised when David Lynch showed up as Cooper's boss and just immediately started telling him where to go to close down the mystery. And his theory was (laughs) that David Lynch was actually injecting himself Mm. into the show as a loud, brash voice yelling in Cooper's ear and telling him what to do to hurry the fuck up with this thing, uh, as basically the voice of the network saying, right. reveal the killer, <laughs> um, which I didn't know about. That's but really hearing good. that, hearing that the network forced their hand mm-hmm. actually makes adds a lot of validity to that read to me. Totally. Um, and then he follows that up with something that I think a lot of people who are Twin Peaks fans already know, but it's, it's worth talking about. Um, he says, however, Bob, which is, you know, the crazy character who we see, who, who Laura... Uh, Palmer's mother sees, we see reflected in the mirror, obviously this really important um, part of this world. Bob was something that Lynch basically improvised on set during shooting. There's a segment from Pretty as a Picture, the Lynch documentary, where it's explained, and then he links to this YouTube video. The actor who ended up playing Bob was a set decorator. Lynch captured a shot of him in Laura's room on impulse without any idea of what he'd use it for. Then oh, they, that's him hiding behind the bed, I think. Mm-hmm, yep. And then when they shot the mother's scream at the end of the episode, the same actor was accidentally captured in the reflection of the mirror behind her. So Bob actually shows up in that moment in the pilot. When you see that on rewatch, it's super scary. Is Bob in the um, – Bob's not in the pan across Laura's bedroom in the pilot though, is he? I don't think so. I think, he sh- I think that shot is repeated with him in it. Yeah, I think so. Man, or it's in the European pilot or something. But that shot – The European pilot has a bunch of that stuff. In yeah, it, that yeah. shot is definitely in this, it again. This is something I was struggling with actually watching this last night because there are – a lot of shots from the European pilot that show up like in the first few episodes. And I was struggling to remember, do I remember this because I saw it last week or do I remember this because I saw it two weeks ago when I watched the right. European you pilot? You can ruin, but maybe thematically augment your perception of Twin Peaks right. by watching the European right. pilot yeah. as well sometime yeah. in your life. And then just not remember if you dreamt <laughs> right. it or if you saw it on, exactly. in a different yeah. version of the pilot. Um, he also says, you guys mentioned the iconic stoplight shot. I can't remember if it's mentioned in the pilot, but it turns out the last time James saw Laura alive was when he stopped his bike at a light at the intersection of Sparkwood and 21. That's episode two. I believe, that's the, yes. I believe that happens in he the He talks in the interrogation. Right. Yeah. Laura hopped off the bike and ran into the woods and he never saw her alive again. It's basically the moment she gives into the darkness and falls into the events that directly lead to her death and are cor- covered in horrific detail in Firewalk with me. Um, I've, I've generally sort of imagined that the stoplight turning red ends up being kind of thematically tied to the mm-hmm. like increased sort of activity or presence of stuff from the black lodge and the red room right. and all that stuff. But it's never, but I, the do, choice I don't to, remember the choice to just show it in that isolated way is still just kind of, it's still just a directorial. Oh yeah, I know. It's great. Like that, in the pilot yeah. one, it cuts to the, because it cuts to the light turning red right before uh, Sarah Palmer has her big mm-hmm. freak out at the very end of the episode. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. it happens a couple times like that, but it's all right. That fucking stoplight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is, this episode has gone on, I think a lot longer than we intended. So do you want to wrap it up here? Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any, I mean, 
we touched on a lot of stuff in the first half of this half of this episode where you're like, oh, obviously that's this, this, and that. Uh, but I don't know if there's a lot to get into with it this week. There will be next week. Man. <laughs> next week. Gee, you're excited. I am. Next week is like... Uh, I, it's like Cooper's dream. It's Tibetan rock throwing. It's all the man. Mm-hmm. Like next week for me is when the show feels like it's actually like it's actually started mm-hmm. after next week's episode because right. it feels it's all, like it's all kind of introducing all the elements. Yeah, like all of the cards are on the table as far as like all the different sort of stratified layers of the show by the end of next week. Um, oh yeah, we're deep into it. Yeah, for sure. And it, yeah, I'll talk about it next week. It just it, it like right. Yeah. So uh, you know where to find us. We told you earlier before the spoiler section. Again, tell your friends if you're enjoying this podcast. Um, Rate us on iTunes if you like it. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. See ya. Bye, Chris. Bye, Jake. See you, Chris. Oh, my God. If your Twin Peaks watching experience is to start with this episode, but with a little previously on Twin Peaks, she's dead, (laughs) wrapped in plastic. You're like, okay. And now this.